Well, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. And as John, the author, has slowed his pace, uh, as he has been focusing uh, intently on the last week and then the last day of Jesus' life prior to his crucifixion, so we have been slowing down and looking intently at that week and then that night in the upper room and then finally uh, his trial and his death. And we focused the past few weeks on what happened during the crucifixion, the, the awful torture that Jesus went through physically. And then we looked at what was going on invisibly uh, as God the Father was pouring out his, his wrath on his son. And then last week, we looked at uh, the death of Jesus, and as uh, Jeff preached, we saw that the, John spoke of himself as an eyewitness to Jesus dying before his legs were broken, thus fulfilling Scripture. This morning, we conclude chapter 19 by looking at Jesus' burial. So if you uh, have a Bible with you, as always, each week, I encourage you to open it up and follow along as I read and then keep it open as we look at specific words and texts in this passage. Uh, it's John chapter 19, verses 38 to 40. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along, you'll find a Bible in the seats in front of you underneath, and you'll find the passage on page 906 of that Bible. John chapter 19, beginning at verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So John says, after these things, a man named Joseph of Arimathea comes on the scene. Now again, after these things, he's of course talking about all of the horrific things that have just happened. And suddenly, this man comes on the scene that we've never heard of before. John has never spoken of him. And yet, uh, we know uh, quite a bit about him uh, because of the the account, the universal witness of all four Gospels. Now, all four Gospels speak of this man, but he's only spoken of in relation to this burial, the burial of the body of Jesus. Well, if you look at the four Gospels, you find out that he was, in fact, a pretty special person in those days. Joseph of Arimathea was, according to Luke chapter 23, he was from the Jewish town of Arimathea. That's how he gets his name, Joseph of Arimathea. According to Matthew 27, he was a very wealthy man. Mark 15 tells us that he was a respected member of the Sanhedrin. 
The Sanhedrin, remember, is essentially the Jewish Supreme Court. It was the court that convicted and uh, sentenced Jesus to death. Luke 23 tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a good and righteous man. And Mark 15 and Luke 23 both uh, report that he was a man who was looking for the kingdom of God. So this man, Joseph of Arimathea, sounds like kind of an all-star in a sense. He had great power. He had great authority. He had great wealth. He had, in a sense, everything going for him. But there was one thing that he had. He had one secret that, if discovered, could destroy everything that he had. The secret is that he was a disciple of Jesus. John tells us he was a disciple of Jesus, yet he was one secretly. We also find in our passage another man. It's a man that we have heard of before. Uh, If you rewind and go back to uh, John chapter 3, you read about a man named Nicodemus. And here we see Nicodemus again. Now, if we go back to John chapter 3, we find that Nicodemus visited Jesus. But John says something very interesting, and in fact, he repeats it here. Right after talking about how Uh, Joseph is a disciple, but secretly. Uh, He says Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. John mentioned that in John chapter 3, and again, he reiterates it here. If you go back to John chapter 3, we see that Nicodemus is very similar to Joseph of Arimathea. He's a man who seemingly has everything that the world could offer. He was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the strictest sect Uh, in Judaism in that day. There were three primary religious sects. One was the Pharisees, we've heard of them. Uh, One was the Sadducees, which we've also heard of, and, and one was the Essenes, which some of you have heard of, but probably most of you haven't. Of those three groups, the Pharisees were the strictest. They were the ones that held to the law, uh, or thought they did, uh, the closest. And uh, Paul, for instance, was a Pharisee when he considered that he himself was following the law and, and was blameless. Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin. So he, along with Joseph, were both part of this high court. And when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, not only is he acknowledging that he's uh, both of these things, but Jesus calls Nicodemus the teacher in Israel. So not only did he have all of these other things going for him, but in fact, Jesus is maybe saying that of all people in uh, Jerusalem in those days, Nicodemus was looked at most highly as a teacher of Scripture. So Nicodemus also had power. He had authority. He had tons of money, as we will find out later in this text. He had a a good reputation, just like Joseph of Arimathea. He had everything going for him. And yet, we see that just like Joseph of Arimathea, when he came to Jesus at night, he was, in a sense, coming to Jesus in secrecy. John 3, verse 2 says, This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. And he said to him, Rabbi, 
We know that you are a teacher come from God, for for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. When he meets with Jesus in secret at night, he says, we know that you are a teacher of Israel. And you say, well, who's the we? Well, is it his Pharisees, his fellow Pharisees? Well, no. It wouldn't have been his fellow Pharisees because all you need to do is read the rest of the Gospels to find out that in general, the Pharisees hated Jesus. Matthew 12, 22 through 24 says, then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, They said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. In other words, the Pharisees, rather than being awed by Jesus and falling at his feet and calling him Lord, actually believed that he was empowered by Satan himself. So when Nicodemus says, we believe you are this, he couldn't have been talking about his fellow Pharisees. And and you say, well, is he talking about his fellow judges in the Sanhedrin? Well, all we need to know about them is Look at what we've seen in, in John's gospel, that the Sanhedrin are the ones that condemned Jesus to death. They were the ones that gathered together and plotted his death, that judged him even before he came in for his trial and said, yeah, we're just, this trial's going to be a formality and we're just going to send this man to his death no matter what because he needs to die so that we can be saved and have our privileged position with Rome. The Jews, as John refers to them in the Gospel of John, always refers to the religious leaders. And when you look at many points in John's Gospel, what you find is that the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, that they hated Jesus so much that they wanted him dead, but they hated him even more than that. They hated him so much that they wanted anyone that even spoke of Jesus or expressed any kind of allegiance to Jesus to be excommunicated, to be kicked out of the synagogue and to lose their position. And so what you find over and over again in the Gospel of John is this phrase, fear of the Jews. Again, it wasn't the Jews in general, it was the Jewish leaders. That's who John is talking about when he's talking about the Jews. So John chapter 7 you see that there's this muttering going on. It says, the Jews, again, talking about the Jewish leaders, were looking for Jesus at the feast. And they're saying, where is he? And then it says, there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no, no, he's leading the people astray. But what he says is, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So we we get this picture early on that that the people are scared of the repercussions of even talking about Jesus. Not just stating their allegiance to him, but, but even if they're overheard by the Jewish leaders, they could get in trouble. John chapter 9, we, we find Jesus, if you go back, you may remember the sermon, Jesus heals the man born blind. Blind from birth. Jesus miraculously heals a man and does something that see. To, to the people, even the people who believed in miracles thought was impossible. And yet Jesus does it. But because he did it on the Sabbath day, the Jewish leaders are infuriated. 
Rather than rejoicing that this man who was born blind can now see, they begin flipping out. They're asking him, who is it who did this? And the man said, look, I just know his name's Jesus. I don't know what he looked like because I was blind. I don't know anything about him. All I know is that I once was blind and now I see. And so then they run to the man's parents. That isn't good enough. They pull his parents out and they say, is this your son? And the parents say, yeah, that's definitely him. We know it's him. Well, how did he see them? How is it? They're trying to interrogate everyone. And his parents are so scared that they say, look, how he sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. It says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. People were scared to death of what would happen to them if they again, expressed any kind of allegiance. And even after Jesus is risen, we will see this in in an upcoming sermon. In John chapter 20, verse 19, it says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Fear of the Jews, these Jewish leaders, was rampant. And it was so rampant that we see this fear even amongst the religious leaders themselves, even in the the privileged class, even in the class that had power and clout and authority, we see the fear. John chapter 12. It says, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Go back then to Nicodemus and his conversation. We can understand, I think, why Nicodemus is going to Jesus in secret at night, why he's whispering to Jesus in the dark. And when he says, we know, we know that you must be sent from God, He can't possibly be talking about all of the Pharisees. He can't possibly be talking about all the rest of the Sanhedrin. I think he's talking about these other guys who are in authority, who are secretly expressing to themselves that they also believe. I don't know how they came to some kind of secret nod or something to let one another know, yes, I also believe in this man, but they weren't letting it be known to anyone. And so, if Nicodemus believes that Jesus is who he says he is, but doesn't want to let it be known, then perhaps another member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, is a secret disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews. Well, so you ask yourself, well, if they had so much going for them, If they were so powerful, if they were so wealthy, if they had such a privileged position, why did they fear the Jewish leaders so much? What was it that they feared? I mean, if they were, it seems like they could have brushed it off. I can understand the the parents of the man born blind being fearful, but, but what of these guys? What do they have to fear? Well, John tells us. John tells us about these people in authority. 
He says in John chapter 12, verse 43, they kept their belief in Jesus in secret, these men who are in authority, because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. These authorities, like Joseph and like Nicodemus, feared the Jews. But they feared the Jews because of this glory. They loved the glory that they received from fellow human beings, from their fellow leaders. The Greek word glory, we, we throw that around, we talk about glory, and it, if you look in a Greek lexicon, it, it does have a pretty wide range of meaning. But I think in the context of, of this verse, when it says they love the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God, one meaning of that word glory is praise. One meaning of the word glory, the same kind of in the same realm, is reputation or approval. Uh, one lexicon describes it this way Glory is the opinion which others have of you. See, at that point in their life, for these two men, it mattered more to them what their peers thought than it mattered what God thought. At this point in their life, at this stage of their discipleship, it mattered more to them what their peers thought of them than what God thought of them. That's why Nicodemus visited Jesus at night. That's why Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple of Jesus. Both of them for a time feared their fellow human beings. It's what theologians for a long time have called the fear of man. The fear of man, much has been written about it. There was a, an excellent book, probably some of you have read it. I read it when I was in seminary, a book called When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. If you've never read that book, I'd encourage you to read it. It's an easy read, but it, it delves deeply into this idea that we fear what people think when we, in our minds, think of them as much larger than God. We know objectively God is far larger than they, but we shrink God down and we blow them up, and suddenly people are big and God is small. The fear of man hits us, all of us, at different times in life, but I think oftentimes it's greater the more we have to lose. Fear of man is greater the more we have to lose. The, the more that we have of this world's power and prestige and position, the more I think we will find a desire to hang on to it. I remember, um, now this doesn't have anything to do with prestige or power, but fear of man, I remember uh, back, some of you know this, if you're old school Meadowcroft, you know that I, I grew up a, a Dallas Cowboys fan. Some of you are new, and maybe you're rethinking whether you want to be at this church. Um, anyway, um, I grew up a Dallas Cowboys fan, and in 1989, uh, the Cowboys had a, had a horrible year. Uh, they went 1-15 that year. And uh, the one win that they had, the one thing that I could kind of enjoy about that year was that their one win came against the Washington Redskins. 
So, if, again, if you follow football, you know that the Cowboys and the Redskins always had, maybe it's sometimes the fiercest rival in all of the NFL. Uh, at that time, it wasn't quite so big because Dallas was just terrible, and uh, the Redskins were actually pretty good. But that game was at RFK Stadium, and I happened to be there. So that season, when, the, when my beloved Cowboys won one game, I was there to witness it. And I was there with a good friend of mine. And as the Redskins struggled, and as the Cowboys scored, now not a ton, but enough to win, uh, I was sitting in a crowd at RFK Stadium of, of you know, over 50,000 angry Redskins fans. And one lone Cowboy fan who was like sitting 15 rows ahead stood up and started cheering as the game wore on and the Cowboys started winning. And everyone around him started cussing at him, throwing things at him, yelling at him. I mean, the looks of anger. And he tur actually turned around and looked right at me, like right in my direction, and said, isn't there anyone here who's a Cowboys fan who can join me? And my friend looked over at me and said, are you going to stand up for this guy? And I said, not today. <laughs> no way. Yeah, to, to, to me, you know, those Redskins fans thought well of me that day. They didn't know anything. Inside, I was a Cowboys fan. Inside, I was cheering greatly for the Cowboys, but I wasn't letting them know because I had too much to lose that day. I didn't want to have a miserable day. At the, why would I have turned 50,000 people into my enemy? So I let that guy be the, the sacrificial lamb in a sense, uh, and he just got wrecked that day. But there was no way that I was going to let my allegiance be known. It wasn't worth that much. Given that day, given those circumstances, my allegiance to the Dallas Cowboys was not worth the ridicule and the scorn and the hatred that it was going to bring onto me. And Christians, Scripture said, are automatically made. We don't make ourselves a Christian. Uh, we can't in our own power make ourselves a Christian. Scripture says that we are made Christians by the power of the Holy Spirit. That God changes us. That the Holy Spirit regenerates us. That Scripture says we are taken from death to life. We are taken and made new creations in Christ by the power of God. It's not something that we do. And so Scripture says that when God makes us this new creation, Jesus says in, in John, we've seen, that we are called out of the world, and Scripture says we are made exiles. We are made pilgrims, strangers in a strange land. Jesus said, the world will hate you because it hates me. So I think if you've been a Christian for long enough, you know what it's like to have fear of man because of your faith. Of all the weeks, now typically speaking, uh, throughout my, my Christian, now not perfectly at all by any means, but, but generally speaking, I have been someone who has welcomed debate over my faith. I may not have stood strong that day for being a Cowboys fan, but like in college, uh, I would argue with the entire class, and uh, I didn't care how many uh, about my faith in Christ. 
Uh, interestingly, this week, as I was studying this text about these guys who were fearful of letting anyone know that they're Christians, I was getting ready to go to the gym. I've just switched gyms. I'm now back at LA Fitness, which is right around the corner because my gym and retro fitness closed this past week. So now I'm at LA Fitness again. I'm, I'm brand new. I, a lot of people there I don't know. It's way more crowded than retro fitness. And as I was getting ready to leave for the gym, I put on a shirt that I've worn to the gym many times. It's fine, it feels great, it fits me, it, it's comfortable, it's a great workout shirt. And I realized, just before I walked out of the house, that it says on the front, Ironworks Church. And on the back, it says, love God, love people, love Westchester. And this Ironworks Church is our sister church over in Westchester. And would you believe it? God convicted me. Because as I was about to leave, I actually had second thoughts of wearing that shirt to the gym. I thought, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll just put on another shirt. I mean, I'm new at this gym. I'm going to be meeting lots of people. I've never, you know, I just want to get in and get out. I don't want my first impression, everyone to read the back of the shirt and their first impression that I'm some weirdo, uh, some religious fanatic. So maybe I'll change my shirt. And I, it was like in that moment, this text that I've been studying all week hit me upside the head and I realized you still do that. All these years of being a Christian, all of these debates you've had with people, all of these times you've stood up strong and confessed your faith, and here you are about to go to the gym where probably no one will say anything to you, and you're second-guessing the t-shirt you're going to wear. Well, happy to say I wore it. I was convicted, and I walked out and wore it to the gym. But you see, what you, what you see in this text, it seems, is that the same is true of Nicodemus and Joseph. At some level... They believed in Jesus, but they did not confess their faith in Jesus. They did not publicly profess it because they cared more about what their peers thought of them than what God thought of them. They had a reputation to protect. They had power and authority to maintain. They had money to hold on to. They had all of these things that the world gives you. And you see in the Gospel of John, I think at least one time, when Nicodemus kind of gingerly tries to sort of support Jesus, and it goes really horribly for him. John chapter 7, there was a, a division among the people over Jesus. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? They're saying this. Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? You can picture Nicodemus kind of standing there. He's, he's a Pharisee. He's listening to this. They're saying, no one believes in him. None of us Pharisees. Now what's Nicodemus going to do? Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said to them, <clears throat> Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Immediately he got pounced on. We're just trying to ask a, a timid question of, shouldn't we hear him out first before we judge him? And he immediately gets pounced on. We also see 
Joseph of Arimathea. The only thing uh, that, that we hear of Joseph of Arimathea that I haven't said yet is in Luke chapter 23, we find out not only that he was a member of the council, that he was rich, that he was a good and righteous man, but we also find out that Joseph of Arimathea was one of the Sanhedrin who did not consent to their decision and action with regard to Jesus. Now what's interesting is that when you read the gospel accounts of the trial, what it seems to suggest is that the Sanhedrin was unanimously agreed. They all agree that Jesus should die. So if if Joseph of Arimathea was one of them, but he did not consent to their action, what that tells me is that his not consenting was kept in secret. That either he wasn't there that day on purpose so that he wouldn't be called out as a supporter, or if he was there, he didn't say anything about it. He kept it secret. He could have been the one voice to stand up and say, guys, this is wrong, and instead he kept silent. But what we find in our text, and this is what struck me this week, what we find in our text is that something drastic has changed in both of these men. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. And Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now they are completely out in the open. In fact, Mark tells us in his account that when Joseph goes and asks Pilate for the body, he had to take courage to do so. It took courage to openly ask Pilate for the body because he not only asked for the body, but he asked for it not to burn it, not to throw it out to the dogs, but to lovingly care for it and to lay it in his very own brand new tomb. And he did this in the middle of the day, out in the open, because we know that Jesus was crucified and and that it all ended around three in the afternoon, and that by six o'clock that night, these men were to be taken care of and taken off the cross and buried in some way so that the Sabbath would not be defiled. And notice he wasn't alone. Nicodemus also comes along with him, and now he's openly joining Joseph in lovingly caring for Jesus' body. According to one New Testament scholar, it says this, As used by the Egyptians, myrrh was a fragrant resin, and when mixed with aloes, the mixture provided a pleasant fragrance that was not used to embalm as the Egyptians practiced, but was used to stifle the smell of the dead body. So we see that this practice, they're they're following practice of using myrrh and aloes to anoint the body of the dead and to care for it. That's not the unusual thing. The unusual thing is the amount that is used. We see here that Nicodemus uses 75 pounds of these spices, this myrrh and aloe. And when we compare it, if we go back to John chapter 12, and we see that Mary, remember Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Mary took a jar, you remember, and she broke it. And in that jar, it had a pound 
a very expensive ointment, nard, pure nard, one pound. And when she anointed Jesus' body, do you remember what the Judas especially uh, was angry at that and said, what a waste. That jar could have been sold for 300 denarii. 300 denarii was approximately the amount of a year's wages. That Mary took something that was worth a year's wages and poured it all out on to Jesus. Well, if we compare that to this 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, uh, if one jar of nard was worth 300 denarii, scholars say that Nicodemus' 75 pounds of spices is worth 30,000 denarii. If what Mary gave to Jesus when he was alive was worth a year's wages, what, what Nicodemus gives to Jesus after he has died is worth a lifetime's worth of wages. What's going on here? Uh, what is it that brought both of these guys out of hiding? What changed? Why were they so secretive before, so concerned about their own reputation before, and now out in the open, going before everyone? It doesn't matter who knows. It doesn't matter who finds out. We are going to care for this man. What was it that made them now care more about what God thought of them than about what man thought of them? Well, the only explanation is that it was the crucifixion itself. It wasn't the teaching of Jesus that made them fully devoted disciples out in the open. It was the death of Jesus on the cross. And that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. In fact, to Nicodemus himself, in that secret conversation, Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's exactly what he told Nicodemus would happen. And I think it was the cross that changed everything for these two men. Think about it. It was Jesus' death on the cross that Jesus again and again and again spoke of and referred to as his hour. It was Jesus' death that was the whole point of him being born. If Jesus had come to earth and taught us all the wonderful things that he taught in here and not gone to the cross, not one person would be saved. It was the crucifixion that made these two men open disciples willing to lose everything they had. And that's the thing. If you are truly a disciple of Jesus, not one by a proclamation only, but if your heart has been changed, if you have been made a new creation, then even if you are trying for a time to keep your discipleship secret, it cannot stay secret forever. I think it's impossible to truly be a disciple of Jesus and remain for your entire life a hidden disciple of Jesus if your life has been changed by him, if your heart has been changed. Why? Because Jesus is too central to your life. 
If he has changed you, if you are truly his, then he is the most important thing in your life. How can, how can it not impact anything that you do in your life? Jesus becomes the center of your life. He becomes your king. He becomes your Lord. And when he is truly those things, that at some point, following him will, by definition, make you come in conflict with the world and what it has to offer. And by definition and just by necessity, or however you want to put it, you will be brought out of your secrecy at some point. And you'll be brought out of your secrecy if you are truly his and if you see him as the pearl of great price. It will pull you out of your secrecy no matter what it costs you. And it has cost Christians throughout history dearly to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Polycarp, I've spoken of him before, Polycarp uh, was uh, an early, early uh, disciple of Jesus. He's an early church father, first century. In fact, he is so early that he knew the Apostle John before John died. And Polycarp was an old man, at least 86 years old, when under the Roman Empire, soldiers were sent to arrest him and haul him and take him to justice because he was a Christian. And the account says that when he was arrested, the Roman authorities, they saw this man, and they saw this old man who had lived by far the bulk of his life already, and, and they actually, for, for once, Roman soldiers felt sorry for someone. They saw this man's age, and they said, look, just, look, you're going to be burned at the stake. Don't end your life like this. Die an old man in bed. Just, and what they said to him is, just, just curse Christ and we will release you. You won't have to die by being burned at the stake. Just curse him, and we'll walk away. And Polycarp answered, 86 years I have served him, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He said to these, to these soldiers, hear it plainly, I am a Christian. And he was hauled away to his death. See, how do you know that you're a true disciple of Jesus? How do you know that you're a disciple of Jesus, not in name only, not in uh, bare proclamation only, but because you have been made one by the power of God? I think one way to tell that you are a disciple of Jesus is that by God's grace, you are willing to give up for Jesus' sake those things that you felt like you could never give up before. And you're willing to give those things up because Jesus gave up everything for you. And you know that and you love him for it. Scripture doesn't tell us what happened to Joseph and Nicodemus. I wonder. I wonder if after this public display if they lost everything they had for the sake of Jesus. I think one day we will find out in glory. I think that's where they are. Before I close, I just want to point out one final thing. You know, we've talked about uh, God's being sovereign over Jesus' crucifixion. 
as we looked at all of the things that happened in the trial and on the cross, and we, you see how John continually reminds us that although all of these things are happening to Jesus, he somehow seems to be the one in control. Although all of these things are happening to him, he is watching all of this unfold based on the plan that he said would happen. And I want us to see here in this burial, after Jesus has died, I mean, it's one thing to be, you know, chained and, and bound and, and being led around by soldiers and be, look like you're not in control, but somehow be in control because you're a manipulative person. It's another thing to be dead and, and have nothing left but a corpse and yet still be in control. And yet that's what I think we see here. In verses 40 to 42, we see, so they took the body of Jesus, they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. We know it was Joseph's tomb. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, what we have to understand is historically, the Romans, when the Romans crucified someone, it was the Roman custom to leave those bodies on the cross for days and days until the bodies rotted and the vultures ate the flesh. Crucifixion, the Romans wanted to be the absolute deterrent to crime, and they wanted it to be the absolute uh, shaming of that person. And so they wanted to leave the, the naked body up there to rot in front of everyone so that vultures could, could eat the flesh. The Jews even if it was a convicted criminal, did not want to leave the bodies up. And so, even though the Romans would do that all around the rest of the Roman Empire, in Judea, the Romans oftentimes would acquiesce to the Jews, the Jews would take down the body, and even if it was a criminal, the body would be buried. Now, the difference is that criminals were buried, one scholar says, outside the city. He says, the Jews never refused to bury an executed criminal, but instead of allowing the bodies of such sinners to be placed in family tombs where they might desecrate those already buried, they provided a burial site for criminals just outside the city. Doubtless, the Jews had decided that Jesus and the other two men would be buried in this lot for criminals. In other words, if you just look at history, you know that Jesus being crucified was destined for one of two places, either to hang on the cross and rot there or to be cast out into a common burial plot for criminals. But you see, God had other plans for his body. Isaiah 53, speaking of the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, 9 says something very interesting. Hundreds of years before Jesus arrived on the scene, Isaiah 53, 9 says, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Hundreds of years before Jesus arrived on the scene, through the prophet Isaiah, God promised that his suffering servant would not be cast into a common lot for criminals, but would be buried in a rich man's tomb. How in the world would that have happened? Jesus was not wealthy. He said, foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We know that when he was hanging on the cross, his last things that he owned 
were divvied up among the soldiers. We know as he was hanging on the cross that all of his closest companions left him. No one was there to care for him. His family members at that time didn't believe who he was. Who was going to do this? How in the world is this going to happen? God used Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea to fulfill his promises. And think of this. If Nicodemus, if Joseph of Arimathea had been open followers of Jesus before this, they may not have had anything for which to do this. If they had come out three years earlier, they may be in hiding with the rest of the disciples in an upper room somewhere. But you see, God used even their fearful, sinful fear of man to fulfill His promises. Jesus' death, rather than send them into hiding, it brought them out. Because they had denied and hidden their belief in Jesus for so long, they looked upon the cross and they looked at their sin and they were disgusted with themselves and they stood out and they said, we are followers of this man. And that gave Jesus not a burial with criminals, but a burial fit for a king. The burial that he deserved. Jesus claimed to be a king. Pilate said that he was a king. Pilate wrote that he was a king. And Jesus was buried as a king. With enough spices that it would, could have been used for a king. The Sabbath day was coming. That's why they buried Jesus so soon. And just as God rested from His work of creation that very first Sabbath, when Jesus proclaimed from the cross, it is finished. He was proclaiming that He had finished all of the work that He came down to do. And His body was resting. And just as God made that first man in the garden, so out of this garden would walk the second man, the new man, the second Adam as first fruits on the first day of the next week. But that's for next week. Today, we remember as we come to the Lord's Supper that Jesus became the perfect Passover lamb.